Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to just start by telling you I had a a very, very busy Shabbos. I had to juggle a lot of different events, unusual for me. And and so I'll just tell you the the challenge that I had. I I give a talk before morning services start here at the Happy Minion at at 8.30, from 8.30 to 9. And I missed that last week because I was in Scotland. And I didn't want to miss it again. But it seemed like I had to because... A very old good friend of mine and my wife's was having a bar mitzvah for their eldest son, and that started about a mile away, also at 8.30. So I had a class that I wanted to give at 8.30, which, by the way, I just found out I've been giving for 21 years. And then a bar mitzvah at 8.30, that was also going on at the same time. And so if I, if I gave the class and then I walked to shul, well, then I'd miss the whole morning service. So that, that didn't seem like a great option. So I wasn't exactly sure what to do. And then I was going to ask one of the local rabbis here, who's like really, he's a very good rabbi, but super by the book. And as soon as I got the idea to ask him, I heard his voice in my head saying the following, what's the problem? Just get up early, go to an early minion before the 8.30 class, and then you're all set. So, but that meant that I had to get up at 5.45 in the morning without an alarm clock, which, thank God, happened. Now, I haven't really gotten to the point of the story yet. The point of the story was my wife told me, wake me up before you go. And these are very close friends of hers as well. And so, so she would have overslept if I, if I hadn't woken her up. So I had like a lot of checkpoints that I had to hit. I had to wake up early, I had to get to that early minion, give the talk, and then be in time for the bar mitzvah boy to do the Torah reading. That was the plan. So I got up early, I left the house, I got about four blocks away from the house, and then I realized I hadn't woke my wife up. So this is This is the point of why I'm telling you all this. Now, I didn't know what to do because I'm four blocks away and all my momentum was heading toward like making sure that this whole juggling act that I was trying to pull off for the morning was well on the way and it had been launched (laughs) seemingly successfully, except I had forgotten this detail. Plus, Not only was my momentum in the direction of going to shul, but I was going to be missing a whole chunk of the prayers if I went back to the house. And then I I thought to myself, well, wait a second. The entirety of the Torah is really about maintaining relationships. It's all about relationships. If I don't go back to the house, there's an excellent chance My wife is going to oversleep. She's going to miss the bar mitzvah. That's going to damage my relationship with my wife. And it's also going to damage her relationship with her friends. And I thought, well, that's clearly the right choice is to go back. So I turned around, which wasn't easy to do, because like I said, you know, my momentum was very much in the other direction. But I turned around because I thought that this is the Torah thing to do. So the reason why I'm telling you this is is because there's so many things to do. If you want to live a Torah life, there's so many things to do. Why, Why are there so many things to do, by the way? So, you know, a lot of people, when they're first starting out in terms of finding out what Torah is and and this, this amazing treasure that the Jewish people have been living for thousands of years, but somehow in the last few generations has become lost, right? And now we see a, a return back to it, a rediscovery of the way we've been living since the beginning of time. So it's, it's beyond, but it's, it's, it's new to so many of us. And so a lot of us find 
our first exposure to it at someone else's Shabbos table. We come to someone's Shabbos table, say a Friday night, and I heard a rabbi say something that made a big impression on me. It sounds a little hokey, honestly, but there's really a lot to it. He was saying that, you know, you can have someone who's got a PhD, a highly intellectual person, and one teaspoon of chicken soup Friday night around a Shabbos table can penetrate their souls more than any intellectual argument about the existence of God or the ubiquity of the Torah in terms of the wiring of time and space. There's, there's something that transcends the intellect. And oftentimes, you, I know this happened to me also, but this is a very common thing. You go to someone's house and you see their kids. And no one's using cell phones and, and people are actually having real conversations by the Shabbos table. And these kids are like just so pure and you say, I want to have kids like that. I want to have a family like that. And this seems to be the headquarters of it. Shabbos is the headquarters of all of that. Okay. And then you find out there's another 612 mitzvahs. <laughs> And it's like someone just hit you over the head with a two-by-four. Like, it's like long plank of wood just like whacked you. It's like, I just wanted what I just described. I just wanted that wonderful feeling Friday night. What are you telling me? You're telling me that there's a way to now do absolutely everything from the moment I'm born to my last breath in this world? You know? What? This is not what I bargained for. And then you have all sorts of dark thoughts. Are the rabbis control freaks, right? Is this, a, what, what is going on, you know? And anyway, and now, and now sort of like the next stage of the journey begins. But why is there so much Jewish law? Why, why is there, right? Let's just cut to the, to the chase here. Let's, and the answer is because God fills the entire world and there is no such thing as a secular moment. Every single moment is filled with Kedusha, is filled with holiness, which means there must be a holy way to do everything, even the most mundane thing, like putting on your socks and shoes, right? If there's one person who doesn't know that there's a Torah way to put on your socks and shoes, I'll just tell you quickly. It's right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe, then you tie your right shoe, I'm sorry, then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. When the, with the tying of the shoes, it reverses, okay? Right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe, and you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. So you can react two ways to that. You can go, there's even a, a way to tie your shoes? Or you can say, there's even a way to tie your shoes? <laughs> and the, by the way, the second one is the right answer. <laughs> even if you start with the first one, you'll get there if you stay with it. At a certain point, the awe, the awe of it all, just like chips through the anger and the, and the closed heart. So yeah. There's a, way, there's a way to actually elevate every single moment and make every single moment of your life holy. And we don't make this sort of like, like, you know, in politics today, they have something called like gerrymandering. Well, what does that mean to gerrymander a district? That means that they basically say, well, wait a second, there's a lot of people from the other party that live in this neighborhood. What if we realign this particular congressional zone so that it doesn't include that neighborhood that has, the, that has more votes than we do? That way we can get the seat of government here. So both parties, by the way, are constantly re 
redefining what the voting district is so that they can knock out the majority votes of the other party. This is going on. This is an old trick. Both parties have been doing this for like at least a century, longer, okay? So we gerrymander also. We say, you know something? This is my business. God, that's your business. <laughs> and we gerrymander our lives. But you can't gerrymander your life when everything is God, when the only thing that exists is God. We just had the most awesome mitzvah in the world, this, this mitzvah of Shemitah, which, which on the most basic level tells you plant crops for six years, and on the seventh year, don't plant any crops, that the land is going to experience Shabbos. Right? Just like the seventh day of the week is, is Shabbat, the seventh year is a Shabbat for the land itself. And then God goes further. He, he tells us how we're supposed to think of the land. Now, think about land for a moment. You know, there's an expression that I like, that it's become such a cliche that no one even kind of tries to visualize like how potent this, this imagery is. But sometimes when people get very shocked like something very unexpected happened. They say, you know, and then I had the rug pulled out from under me, right? I, I, you don't hear that expression so much these days, but there was a period of time where that was like the go-to metaphor for being uncomfortably surprised. Now just take a moment to visualize that. You're standing on a rug and some very strong person just pulls it out super quickly and you fall backwards on your head. You lose your footing and you hurt yourself. That's what that imagery is meant to suggest. I had the rug pulled out from under me. Not a comfortable experience, what those words are describing. You want to hear the ultimate rug pull? God says, the land is mine. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I see your paperwork. I see it. No, 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 I get it. I, 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 I get that. You, it, there it is. I see the bank statements. <laughs> I get it. There, there was a withdrawal. It went to this person. You have a deed for the land. God says, I get all that. And guess what? The land was always mine. <laughs> it was never not mine. And it's going to continue to be mine. And when you sell land to another person, because you're allowed to sell land to another person in the Torah. You're not selling the land. You're selling the crops that grow from the land. You're not selling the land. You're selling the monetary value of the crops that grow on the land. And since all the land reverts back to its original inheritor, I'm not going to say owner, inheritor, so if you want to sell your land, remember there's now a 50-year cycle. Just like the land rests on the seventh year, it also rests on the 50th year, and it goes even further. Any land that you sold goes back to you. It's this amazing reset button. You know, it's, I've discussed it before, but we've got different economic models. We've got capitalism, we've got socialism, we've got communism. But we've also got the Torah economic model. And this is God's own economic model. It's a utopian economic vision that God has given us, which is that every 50 years, all the land reverts back to its original inheritor. Who is the original, Who is the original owner? So, so what, we have, what we have is is this amazing second chance that God gives. Now, who was the original owner of the land? That the land was divided up when we entered into the land of Israel among the different tribes and the different families. But the land always belongs to God. Now, the reason why I'm trying to emphasize this is because when it comes to just, if you want to just take a deep dive in, into your own psychology and your own sense of entitlement 
or I would suggest your own false sense of entitlement, a lot of it comes from this phrase, get off my land. <laughs> like, the, as though anything truly in the most macro sense can be yours or mine. As though there's such a thing. Get out of my room. <laughs> Get out of my house. You know, as Reb Shlomo would say, it's sweet and it's cute. But it all belongs to God. So this idea of gerrymandering our own lives, this is mine, <laughs> that's yours, God. No, 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 everything is his and then perhaps ours. Perhaps ours. You know, I, I, I always think that one of the big steps to getting married, when you get married, you have to change the word I into we. Because once, once there's the marriage, there's no, more, there's no more I. I mean, there's moments where you need to kind of chill and to kind of just regroup and things like that. But the essential unit isn't two eyes who have made a partnership with each other. I'll tell you something, I had a heartbreaking conversation with someone who was like, just on the precipice of getting divorced. He did end up getting divorced, sadly. But I think before he actually got to that moment, even though it seemed like the relationship, sadly, was, was pretty much over at this point, he, he wanted to talk to me. And uh, I, I asked him, you know, I was trying to, you know, understand their relationship and where their relationship was at. And he said, he, he, he said this phrase, which just sort of haunted me. I think I was asking him to define love, what love meant to him, you know, in terms of his relationship with his wife. And he said that there's a part, and he was not trying to be funny, and he did not give this a lot of thought. It just kind of came off his lips, right? Which makes it more potent. He said, he said, there's, there, she rents a part of my heart. And I said, rents? She rents a part of your heart? I mean, at that point, it was very clear to me anyway that the relationship was over. Rents, she rents a part of my heart. So, so, so let's return back to the point. The point is, is that I turned back and I woke up my wife. And by the way, she said, when I, when I came back, she said, oh yeah, I had already woken up. Did that make my choice to go back to wake her up any less the right decision? No. Did, did, was my reaction, ah, oh, why did I have to do that? She already woke up. I did that for nothing. No. No, because that wasn't the test. The test was I said I'd wake her up, and I had to keep my word, and I had to prioritize how we're serving God. And what I'm trying to tell you is that everything is about relationships. If you look at the whole Torah, where, where does everything go wrong? There's there so many ways things go wrong. It's, the, snake says to, the snake says to Chava, to Eve, like, God doesn't want you to join the God club. Right? You can also be God. You should be God too. You can be. But our relationship with God is that God is the master of the universe and we're his children. Like, can you imagine going up to your father or to your mother and saying, you know something, I love you so much. And I think over the years, we've really built a really special relationship. And I've always been there for you. And I've really respected you. And do you feel that love? And let's say your father, your mother says, yes, I feel that love. And you say, you know something? You know, I'm, I'm a grown-up right now, and you've raised me so well. And I really feel as though I'm ready for more responsibility. 
And so I would like you also to refer to me as your father and your mother. <laughs> I'm ready for a promotion. I feel like I've done the work and I don't want to be your child anymore. I also want to be a parent alongside of you. Can you imagine anything more absurd? I mean, and look how the, the person in this example I'm making up is coming from such an earnest place. <laughs> it's even more hilarious, right? He's so, such a dunce. Such a dunce, but he's coming from this like very sincere, earnest place. I've really done the work. I've given you so much respect. So dad, I would like you from now on to refer to me as dad. <laughs> and mom, you can call me dad too. Or if you want to call me Abba or Tati, whatever you're most comfortable with. <laughs> can you imagine the snake comes to Chava and says, you can also be God. It's the exact same thing. Do you understand? So now Chava reintroduces herself to Hashem as God. Right? I'm also God. It doesn't make any sense. You know why? Because the boundaries of the relationship were fundamentally violated. It wasn't just there's a mitzvah. The mitzvah is God says... Don't eat from that tree. By the way, we were going to be able to eat from the tree of knowledge. We're not against knowledge. We love knowledge. Anyone who knows the first thing about Jews knows that we love knowledge. The rabbis teach that we had to eat first from the tree of life. First you eat from the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life. Then you can eat from the tree of knowledge. And what the exact order of it was in terms of the timeline... I've heard different things that we would be able to eat from the tree of knowledge on Shabbos, whatever it was. The main thing is that we had to eat from the tree of life first. And just to explain it a little bit better in case, in case it's not clear in your head, the example that I always like to give along the lines of what we've been discussing is, have you ever had a moment where your child really thought that they knew more than you? You know, so here's the example that I love. You say to your child, would you like a candy bar? And the, and the young child says, yes. And then the young child says, this was so good. I want to eat now 30 candy bars. <laughs> and you say, no, 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 no. If you eat 30 candy bars, you're going to get a stomachache. And the child says back, okay, let's just do the math. Let's just run through the math. If one candy bar is delicious, 30 candy bars will be 30 times more delicious. And you say to your child, no, you're going to get sick. And your child goes, okay, where did I lose you? Let's just go back to the numbers. Dad, you're being very emotional, Dad. <laughs> let's just be clear and logical. If one candy bar is delicious... 30 candy bars is going to be extraordinary. So what is the child lacking? The child is lacking experience. We tend to prize intellect. The world prizes intellect. But let me tell you something. Do you know how screwed up intellectual people have made this world? Intellects have almost destroyed this world countless times. We don't want smart people. We want wise people. <laughs> we want wisdom. And so I made a little mathematical formula about this. You ready? Intellect plus experience equals wisdom. Right? We don't want just the intellect. We want the intellect plus experience. That's Then we have wisdom. Wisdom is what we want. Okay, but again, let's go back to this idea of relationships. So we tend to think that here's my life. It's my life, right? Like the land is mine. Nothing is mine, by the way. Nothing is yours. Nothing belongs to you. That's just reality. 
It's a big reality check. You know what belongs to you? There's one thing that belongs to you. Your relationship with God. That's what belongs to you. Period. End. But we get confused. We say, no, no, no. This is my life. This is my life. And then a lot of people take it the next step. They say, okay, if I want to be a good person, I'll believe in God. But what does that mean? That means God is really just a thought in my head. So God is a subset of me. <laughs> Not I'm a subset of God. God, because I want to be a decent human being, for goodness sakes. Got to believe in God. But God is just a thought in my head to give me more grandeur. God's a subset of me. Sadly, this is how a lot of people go through life without even realizing it. And then they think the mitzvot, the commandments, these are just a very elaborate checklist of things that I have to do in my life. And then we go, wait a second. No, no, no. I'm involved in a relationship. That's the foundation. I'm in a relationship with God. And these are the different ways in which God allows me to bind myself to him, to be in this bilateral love affair coming from both sides. That's what the mitzvot are. To be in sync with myself, with my own soul, which is a piece of God. To be in sync with the universe, to be in sync with my community and my family and my loved ones. God is giving me a vision of how to make proper decisions. It's not just a to-do to list floating in the air. All right, let me go deeper now. I hit on something during the davening Friday night. And for me, I just... I want to give you what I think is a very powerful visual that expresses God's love for us and also kind of solves a, a little bit of a question. So, do you know that the rabbis teach that Mount Sinai, we're coming up to the holiday, Shavuos. It's in only a few more days. It's in another 12 days. Shavuos is the holiday where God gives us the Torah at Mount Sinai. And remember, that's, that's a major, major event and distinguishes the Jewish people from every other people in the world. Why? Because all the other religions of the world have a primary person they call their prophet. And the prophet so-called got the word of God and tells everybody else, you know, this is what God told me and follow me. But it's an individual. What distinguishes Judaism in the utmost radical way is that at Mount Sinai, there were approximately two and a half million people who all simultaneously heard the word of God and all heard the same thing. Not one guy going, trust me. Two and a half million people, no other religion claims that because no other religion would have the chutzpah, would have the temerity to claim something that would be so easily disproven. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what happened. Or as, as I heard Rabbi Edin Steinsold say so awesomely, for thousands of years, people spoke to God. At Mount Sinai, God spoke back. Okay. Now, the rabbis compare that event to a chuppah, a marriage canopy, between a chasun and a kala, between a bride and groom, Hashem being, so to speak, the groom, Klag Yisrael, the nation of Israel, being the bride. And basically what happens at Mount Sinai is this amazing, this amazing event where basically heaven and earth come together. And God reveals the underpinnings of the structure of the universe, of time, space, and soul. You know, in Hebrew, that's olam shana nefesh. And the first letters spell the word ashan, which means smoke. 
And when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, it says that the mountain was smoking on a very deep level. It uses that word, ashan, time, space, and soul. That's what the Sefer Yetzirah says. All of reality can be, bro- can be boiled down into those three categories. Ashan, fish, time, space, soul. When it says that the mountain at Mount Sinai was smoking and uses the word ashan, what God gave us a vision into was how the mitzvahs and the wiring of the mitzvahs completely bring together time, space, and soul. We got an x-ray of the structure of the universe and how the mitzvahs are the wiring to all of reality. One of the things that we just learned is how can it be that if you keep the mitzvah, a mitzvah, let's say you give it tzedakah, that the rain comes in its time, in its proper time? What is me giving, you know, some money to a homeless person on the street, right? Or to the happy minion, please. <laughs> what, what does that have to do with it raining on time? Because it's all wired together. It's all wired together. That's why. Okay. So I want to return back to this imagery. So I'm telling you, Mount Sinai is this epic event between God and the Jewish people, and it's compared to a marriage canopy. Now, have you ever been to a wedding? This is a custom at many, many Jewish weddings. It's a very beautiful custom. The kala, the bride, walks toward the chuppah, walks toward the marriage canopy, and the chassan, the groom, is already there. And then he leaves the chuppah and goes mid-aisle to meet his bride. Right? Have you seen that? He leaves the chuppah and he meets the bride on the way to the chuppah. She's walking toward the chuppah. And then they walk together back to the chuppah. They have a little moment where they, you know, connect. It's very beautiful. Everyone takes pictures like crazy. And then he walks her and escorts her back to the chuppah, which is, you know, kind of like a model of the house. All right, so I'm going to use that imagery to answer a question that I had. Here's my question. This Shabbos, we read the Parsha, Bahar. Bahar, the word har means mountain. And it says Bahar Sinai, on the mountain of Sinai. So that's where the Torah was given. And it's so interesting that here we're about to come up to the holiday of Shavuos, which takes place at Mount Sinai. And here the weekly Parsha is talking about Mount Sinai. I thought, wow, that's, that's so nice. Except, it's coming a little bit early. <laughs> and then I thought, wow, you know what it is? God is the chasen, kaviyocho. God is like the groom. He's leaving the chuppah to come to meet us early. That's why Mount Sinai, Bahar Sinai, Bahar is coming early. Because he's leaving. We're on our way to the chuppah. We're on our way to Mount Sinai. But he's bringing, so to speak, Mount Sinai to us because like the groom meeting the kala, he's coming to greet us. Now, we had a double Parsha. That's the image, by the way. And it's so filled with love. It's so filled with love. You see, because the problem is, the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because we're still talking about the same thing. We're still talking about relationships. We so often think that I'm on one side of the table, God is on the other side of the table, and he's issuing orders to me. And we don't understand that we're on the, we're on the same side of the table. We're in it together. It's a love relationship. And how we think about God, how we understand what our relationship is with God, is going to be the core reality of how we get through life, how we see everything. And if we don't get that relationship right, 
It's the saddest thing. You know, I often think about what Rabbi Shimon Green said, that the most valuable real estate in the entire world is that one foot between your ears. You get to choose which reality you exist in. If you want to live in a world where God hates you and where the world is an awful place and everything like that, you get to live there. I don't know why you would want to, but you get to live there, and that will be your reality. But there is an objective reality. There is an objective truth to the universe. And that is that God loves us, but he also expects certain things from us. As well he should. You know, speaking of Rabbi Green, I remember him saying, talking about this idea in a, in a different way, and he was like, oh, you belong to you? This is like, like your, your life is yours? You, he goes, your nose? That's your nose? He says, where's the receipt? <laughs> it belongs to you. I would like to see the receipt for your nose. It's yours, right? So you must have a receipt. Where is it? As though anything belongs to us? Now we read another Parsha last week. It was a double Parsha. Very deep. And the Ishbitzer, the Meishalach, says something unbelievable. It starts off with this word, im. If you walk in my ways, I'm going to grant you all of these blessings. If you walk in my ways. Now, the Ishbitzer says something so beautiful. He says the word im, if, is lushan tefila, meaning a, a word of prayer, meaning that God is not like a school, high school principal cutting a deal, like, okay, you all get prom night if, you know, no one is late and no one cuts classes and you clean the graffiti off the, the gym wall, right? God's not cutting a deal here, saying, if you do this, I'll give you these blessings. The Ishbitzer says that, if you do this, that God is praying that we should do this. If, if you do this, Please, my children, do this. These are the blessings that I want to give you if you do this. Reb Shlomo said that when we keep the mitzvahs, we're dreaming God's dreams and we're praying God's prayers. But I never saw an instance in the Torah Shebek Tzav, in the, in the five books, where God is praying for us. And so this was so eye-opening to see, like, to so to speak catch God praying. <laughs> but it just reveals depths and depths and depths about our relationship of who he is. You see, there's something that's hardwired into our human nature, which is that if you tell someone to do something, whatever it is, if you tell someone to do something, it immediately creates a negative vibe. Immediately, right? Even if you say, it doesn't matter what it is. So let me give you an absurd example. Eat that chocolate ice cream, it's delicious. It's like, okay, now I don't want to eat the chocolate ice cream. <laughs> I absolutely don't want to do it anymore. Do you, like, do you like chocolate ice cream? I love chocolate ice cream. But you just yelled at me to eat the chocolate ice cream, so I'm not eating it. Why should I eat it? So... So people instinctually understand the mitzvot, and they're translated very unhelpfully, by the way, as commandments, very unhelpfully. The, the, the root, the Hebrew root of the word mitzvah, which is being translated in that tragic way, is tzav, which means a connection. God is asking us to connect with him. Like, who wouldn't want to connect with God? It's like the greatest opportunity in the world. But, you know, have you ever, 
Has anyone ever said this to you? Or if not, for sure you've experienced this. It's good if someone said it to you or if you said it to someone else. Hey, you know something? I think we got off on the wrong foot. We got off on the wrong foot. Let's, let's just take a couple of steps back and just try to reevaluate, kind of like, just like, let's just start again, okay? And maybe you trade back and forth why you had this misimpression of each other. But as soon as you hear this word commandment, we've already gotten off on the wrong foot with God. He's already the one on the other side of the table with a whip. And we're trying to figure out how can I get it right with him and still do all the things that I want to do? (laughs) Instead of going through life with God. You know, by the way, the name of this website where all my Torah talks are, are on, it's called Living With God. That's the name of it. And I remember this group from another religion one time contacted me and said, oh, can we have that name instead of you? And I was like, no, you cannot have that name instead of me. No. How's that for an answer? But that's what we're doing. That's the idea, living with God. Right, im b'chukosai, if, please, my children, alavai, you should be keeping the mitzvahs, these connections, you should allow yourself to connect with me, because I'm connecting with you. Okay. I want to go deeper and tell you another unbelievable Ishbitzer Torah this was from the son of the Meishalach. This is from the Beis Yaakov. So he says, Im B'chukos is teaching us a very, very, very profound lesson about the way God runs the world. You see, the word B'chukosai has the word Chok in it. Chok are those mitzvahs that are beyond the rational mind, right? They just go... Beyond, 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 beyond. The the rational mind can grasp only so much. You know, amazingly, human beings are just like unbelievable in in terms of what we've been able to, to accomplish, right? But even still, God is infinite, and we are below God. We're God's children, okay? Only God is God. So a chok are those things that God tells us to do which are beyond our rational mind. Now listen to what the Ishbitzer says. He says that God, the way God deliberately made the universe, this was God's idea, okay? This was on purpose. Was that there are going to be certain things that we try to accomplish and maybe we're not able to accomplish them but that we have to understand that what we're accomplishing goes beyond what we know we're accomplishing. In other words, sometimes we have certain goals in our life and we hit a brick wall and we're not able to accomplish those things and it's very frustrating and sad for us. But what God says is that if you try your hardest, I'm going to make it so that you're able to accomplish those things on a soul level, in terms of fixing your own soul, even if you can't see them with your eyes, I'm going to bring them into the world. So let me give you further information about what he says. It will be clear in a moment. And he gives an example, very amazing example. Imagine someone drops some money on the ground by accident. Okay? Now imagine another person picks up that money and uses it to do a mitzvah. Now imagine all of the mitzvahs that come from having been done because that person dropped the money on the ground. All of those mitzvahs are accredited to the person who dropped the money on the ground initially. So what does it mean, a chok? What does it mean beyond your knowledge? That means that there are certain 
waves of holiness that you've brought into the world without you even knowing it. You're not even aware of what they are, but you are responsible for them happening. And God did that on purpose. There are things that we know that we've accomplished. There are things that we're trying to accomplish that we haven't accomplished, and we're very frustrated by that. And there are things that we're accomplishing that we have no idea that we're accomplishing because we've put those things into the world. Echoes of our actions that are changing the world and still fixing our soul in ways that we're not even aware of. Now, as an incredible, as an incredible illustration of this, and he's not using this as a proof to this idea, but he mentions it in the same breath. The week that we read this Parsha about all these things that are happening that we're not aware of is the week that Lagba Omer falls out on. Okay, what's Lagba Omer? Lagba Omer is the 33rd day of the Omer. That's why it's called Lag. Lamed Gimel is 30 plus 3, 33. And it's also the yard site, which is like the ultimate day of perfection of a soul, the last day of a person's life on earth, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who's the author of the Zohar, which is all about the mystical texts, the things that you can't know in this world, right? So Parshas Bechukosai, which is talking about the chok beyond our knowledge, all these things that are happening that we're putting into the world that we're not even aware of, happens the same week as the Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's yard site, which is on the 33rd day of the Omer. You want to hear something unbelievable? The Beis Yaakov, the Ishbitzer Rebbe, points out that B'chu Kosai is the 33rd Parsha of the Torah. That it exactly correlates. And this idea of not knowing but now you can be on the level of knowing that you don't know. Correlates with the idea of the Zohar, of beyond knowing. Then he says that there are certain blessings and curses that are in this week's Parsha, and he counts them. There are 33 blessings and 33 curses. As though it wasn't enough that there was the 33rd Parsha of the Torah. I mean, it's incredible. Then at the end of the Parsha, it talks about how God creates this opportunity where if you wanted to, believe it or not, give your life to the holy temple, right? So that doesn't mean sacrifice your life, but you just kind of want to give over your life as property of the holy temple that there's a way, a structure of evaluating how much that would be and how much that donation would be. Or if you wanted to give your cow as a gift to the Holy Temple. So it's, it's valued at a certain amount. And the Torah goes through various valuations. There's a whole volume of the Talmud that's devoted to this called Erechim. Do you know how many examples the Torah gives? 33. And the Ishbitzer says that what God is intending is to show us that every single thing in the world can be made into holiness. That's this idea of transferring some property into part of the base of Mikdash. That there's nothing in the world that can't be made into something holy. Unless it was something that was already in Kherim, but that's getting technical. But the idea is that everything can be made holy. So this blew my mind. I read it before Shabbos Mincha. I go to shul. I didn't mention this. I'm talking to my friend John Honig. He knows that I was just in Scotland, so he tells me this story. He says, you know, I met someone on an airplane many, many, many years ago, and he was from Glasgow, 
And then years later, I found myself in Glasgow, Erev Shabbos, without a place for Shabbos, and it's storming rain. And I called him up, and he said, yes, please come over. And I had this incredible Shabbos with him. I met his kids. Unbelievable. It was years after I met him on the plane. It was like a miracle that I had this place, you know, in this strange country. He says, then years later, I'm doing my residency. And you have to work 36 hours at a time within eight, eight hours of sleep for 36 hours of work. And there was a, a, a girl who was brought in. She was like 18 years old. She had toxic shock syndrome. She was dying. Her blood pressure went down to 40, which is basically at death's door. He continued to work with her. He stayed up 56 hours beyond like a life-crushing 36 hours. To get through that is life-crushing. He extended it, was fine-tuning the medications, and finally he saw a reversal, and she came back to life. He walks out into the hallway, and there's his friend from Glasgow. It was his daughter. I said, how long did that happen? How long ago did that happen? He looks up toward the ceiling, does the math. He says, 33 years ago. I didn't tell him anything about what I just told you before. Is God close? Is God listening? Is God with us? Does God love us? Yes, 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 and yes. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.